One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Caitlin Horrocks, author of The Vexations. Something that I had been thinking about with with Belle Epoque Paris and, and the art of the period and the performers of the period and kind of the people on whose backs um, so much of Paris is this like you know, pleasure destination rested on, uh, was that our art's always been a hustle. <laughs> like, it's always been really hard uh, to, to make a life. We'll hear more from Caitlin in just a minute. First, I want to tell you a little bit about First Draft. I've been reading a book a week for the last six-plus years with the goal of offering insight into craft, theme, and the literary life. This past week, I completed my 250th interview. It's nearly impossible to believe myself that I've read 250 books and talked to the author of each one and shared that back with you. My conversations are truly a striving toward fulfilling curiosity and expressing empathy. I hope they contain content you don't find elsewhere. I know a lot of you are listening in your cars or in your headphones as you walk outside or exercise. Maybe you're on a stationary bike or cooking in your kitchen. And I recognize your computer is not at your fingertips. But I sincerely invite you to support First Draft at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. 
For your support, you will receive extras from the show, interview segments that didn't make it to the final episode, writing tips from authors, and books. Please consider when you next go to your computer that this is a task worth remembering. Your patronage keeps these conversations going. The first tier of giving is just $6 a month, and at the end of each month, I email you with links to all the extras. I can't do it without you, and it's a great way to spend $6 a month for all of these conversations. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Caitlin Horrocks, author of the novel The Vexations and the short story collection This Is Not Your City, which was a New York Times book review editor's choice and a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection. She is on the advisory board of the Kenyan Review, and Caitlin Horrocks teaches at Grand Valley State University and at the Warren Wilson College MFA program. Her novel, The Vexations, is a fictional account of the classical composer Eric Satie, who lived in Paris during the early 1900s and was composing music and playing in cabarets during the heart of the Belle Epoque. The Vexations focuses on Eric's life from childhood to his death in 1925. He was truly a starving artist, aiming for greatness and often falling short. The novel alternates perspectives between Eric his younger sister Louise, and his friend Philippe, who is a writer. The Vexations is a novel about the ambition of artists as well as the failures of family. Before we begin the discussion, I'm going to play a little bit of Satie's music that Caitlin Horrocks refers to in our conversation. After that, she begins discussing her own knowledge of music and her inspiration for The Vexations. Going into it, I knew a modest amount about music. I uh, I took piano lessons for a long time as a child. Uh, my my grandmother was was a piano teacher and a music teacher. I, I grew up playing piano, um, but not particularly well. I was this was this was never my my great talent. Uh, but I, I had a very patient teacher who at one point gave me um, a settee composition, Gymnopédie Number no. Three, uh, which is the most famous of, of his works. Um, probably anyone hearing this has, has heard it somewhere, even if you don't know you have. Uh, and I, I just loved it. I, I found it very technically accessible. It was easy to play. It was easy to sort of play and feel like I was sounding, you know, very elegant and uh, very um, moody. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to, to play more of this person's music. Uh, and then really quickly discovered um, that he had a handful of pieces like that, and then other pieces that were just much more experimental, much more quirky, um, much more humorous, which is not something you encounter a lot playing classical piano. And I had sort of a, a curiosity about who the person had been who had who had created all these pieces. Uh, and then um, didn't do much with that. <laughs> kind of had a, had a question about him, um, but didn't pursue it further uh, until I wrote um, a pretty terrible short story um, about Seti uh, in 2010 uh, and uh, realized if we, sort of if the project was going to go anywhere it would it would need to be a novel. You played piano you'd listen to music so you heard 
probably a lot of different kind of music, but was there something about this musical piece that touched you in a different way that you were curious about his life or had you heard a little bit about his life? Like what about this one rose to the top for you? I think once I realized that he had written it when he was very, very young. Um, Sati now, the gymnopodies, there's, there's three of them. They're each about two pages. Uh, they're, they're quite short. Um, and the three of them together are by far the most famous things he wrote. Uh, they're the pieces that, that people know that, that you, that you've heard that get used in TV and, and movies and commercials. Uh, and he wrote them when he was 21. <laughs> But but you know didn't didn't write them and then walk away from music wrote them and then kept just really doggedly and and relentlessly pursuing a career in music, uh, and and kept growing his talents and and studying and experimenting and and trying to do different things, uh, in in what to me is still a really like moving admirable way, um, but but never never wrote anything that kind of captured the popular imagination the way these people pieces have. And I think for me, having created the things that he is known for, he created so young. And what was the rest of his life like? And and of course, he didn't know that. I think as artists, we don't know what's going to survive or not, um, that that we would be so fortunate to have anything survive, Uh, that the arc of, of that life um, and his attitude towards his, his own music or his intentions for his own music, uh, that was part of what drew me to him and, and to the material. And can you talk a little bit about who is Eric at his core? His music is really playful, a lot of it. Uh, and he wrote, he left actually a whole body of sort of humorous writings and, and newspaper pieces and uh um, cartoons and, and drawings that are, are really funny and um, surprising. In his life, uh, he was really difficult. Um, he was very hard to to stay friends with, to um, be close to. He lashed out at people. He turned on people very quickly. Um, he was very quick to perceive um, slights or, or disrespect. I had been researching him for, for a long time, and uh, one of the sort of foremost um, scholars had a, a moment in a, in a scholarly article where he said, you know, it's sort of strange to have spent a huge portion of my working life um, studying somebody I'm not sure I would want to sit and have a drink with. Uh, and I had this, like, this moment of, of recognition of, you know, you, you too. You know, I, I feel great empathy and, and great admiration and great affection towards him. But feeling that alongside a recognition of how challenging he would have been to actually try to to support um, or to to know or to love uh, was was definitely a driving question for the book. Um, and and I, one of the challenges of the character that I wanted to be true to his prickliness. Um, but also not just create a character that would make the reader want to throw the book across the room. You know, I, I wanted the reader to also feel the mix of, of maybe exasperation and affection um, that I was feeling for him. Uh, so so Eric is, yeah, just this sort of, um, you know, hugely you know, talented, striving, idiosyncratic, really sort of unique and, and capable of great charm, um, but also often very difficult person. And for a long time, the book was very closely focused on him. It was, it was sort of becoming very biopicy, very great man uh, narrative. E- even though I, I knew from the beginning that wasn't 
what I wanted to do, but that was sort of the, the hole the book kept falling into. Uh, and then once I started researching the people around him a little bit more, um, sort of delving into, into their own lives, um, the book opened up uh, and, and moved a little bit farther away from Eric to, to encompass the people around him which included his brother Conrad, I would say like Conrad and Eric had a kind of Vincent and Theo Van Gogh dynamic where you've got a kind of steady sibling supporting uh, a talented but troubled brother. I, and then um, Louise lived very, um, she, was, she was raised apart from her brothers after the mother's death. Um, she lived um, a life that mostly kind of went along its own track and intersected at, at various points with the rest of her family. Um, but a life that, that turned out um, to have been uh, really, really fascinating to me in its own right. Um, and I, I was interested in what these other characters had to say about Eric, um, and then interested in these other characters for, for their own stories and, and their own trajectories. Um, and certainly what Louise went through ended up having a lot to say about the different opportunities that were available to people um, at this time in this place. Louise, his sister, had a very different experience when the family, they got separated, basically, when the dad brought them to the mothers. The mothers kept the two boys, Conrad and Eric, and then Louise was sent off to kind of a, a distant uncle figure um, and had lived a much more austere life, um, was more, um, I would say, kept down and couldn't really express herself and, and didn't get to see her brothers very much. And, and Louise is a big voice in the book. She shows up often as a literal footnote in, in Sati biographies. And for a long time, that was, you know, there would be a, a few lines about her and that was all I knew about her. Uh, and when I started um, writing about her more closely, uh, that was that felt really freeing um, that I had been spending so much time trying to reconcile all the information that was available about about Eric, just both about his biography and about his music. Uh, and then here was somebody um, where I, I knew a handful of things. You know, I knew that she'd ended up in Argentina, um, that she had left France. I knew that she had you know married into this particular family, that she had had a child, that she did not bring the child with her to Argentina. And, and that was it. And it was, I mean, it was a, just these sort of interesting, interesting points. And I, I didn't know what connected them. And being able to sort of write into her character was, was really freeing. One kind of eerie thing about working on the same book for nine years uh, is that there's uh, information available towards the end of the process that was genuinely not available when I started. Uh, so once, once I sort of reopened my inquiry into her character, there was a radio documentary available and uh, it filled in a lot of those those gaps. Uh, Andrea Cohen had done a great deal of, of research tracking down people who knew her in Buenos Aires, people who um, are now elderly, but who had been her piano students, who, who had known her in person. Um, also somebody in, in Normandy who knew a great deal of genealogical research about the Lafosse family that uh, uh, Louise marries into, uh, and just found, found that fascinating. Um, and again, that sort of spurred me to want to um, fully integrate her path into the book uh, and, and bring her story in as, as a major part of the novel. What your book is really exploring, I mean, it's exploring a lot, but one of the things it's exploring is, is the artistic process. And how does someone throughout the course of their life 
maybe manifest their talent? How do they interact with the society before them? One of the questions that it left me with is, what happens when you lose everything? That idea of reinvention was was really important to me. Um, and thinking about, you know, what happens, what are the moments in most people's lives where maybe you have to have a reckoning uh, and go from plan A to plan B or from plan B to plan C or C to D? Um I work at a university, uh, and one of the things that we all sort of pitch in on is uh, talented high school students come, and they have this sort of in-person gauntlet of uh, uh, questions and interviews that they do for for scholarship allocation. And I have this very vivid memory of kind of on automatic pilot. You know, I was I had a list of questions I was supposed to ask. I ask a student, you know, what extracurriculars have you been doing? They talk to me about sports. Uh, and um, I said, oh, and are you, are you going to continue with that at Grand Valley? And they said, no. And I said, oh, why? And they're like, they just looked at me with a stricken expression. And they're like, I'm not good enough. <laughs> and, I, and I felt really bad because <laughs> it was a dumb question. I, and, and then um, just that moment of recognition where it was, it was just this, this kid, really, who had already had that moment of, you know, here's something I care about. Here's something I enjoy. And I am only this level of talented at it. Um, and that is a level of talent that is going to allow me to participate, you know, in, in club sports, uh, but, but not, you know, not at a division two varsity level. I, and, and in this, it was a very sort of small version of, um, I, I think a lot of us have these larger moments of um, what, what is my path going to be? What opportunities are available to me? Um, what, what, what do I do with the talent that I have and, and where do I put it and, and how hard do I try or in, or in what direction do I try? And I, I think for someone like Louise, a lot of her path through the book is, is so constrained um, by what opportunities are available to her um, as, as a woman, what opportunities are available to her financially and legally. Um, and Eric is somebody who has a, a ton of freedom, really. I uh, but is absolutely dogged about um, a very early version of his life. He, he wants to be a composer. He wants to succeed um, in music and he does not let go. Uh, even, you know, even as he's struggling financially, even as he's broke essentially all of his life. Uh, and then, you know, other people around him um, pursue the same path and, and find more obvious success, more more critical acclaim or, or more money. Um, certainly he sort of came up as a young artist with other people who um, who, who turned away and, and who chose other places, who sort of decided, um, you know, I think we have a lot of romance, you know, sense of romance and cultural cliche around the idea of the starving artist. Uh, and, and when the artist is literally starving, uh, that's... Uh, that's a much harder, grittier, untenable reality. Uh, and that was definitely something that I was thinking about in the book. Yeah, I mean, he has so many moments of, of public shame and humiliation and failure. He is hired often at these different cafes, restaurants, cabaret type of venues where maybe he just doesn't rise to the occasion or he gets treated really poorly by someone above him or the people don't respond to his music in the way that he wants. And he does keep going. He did go to school and, and got kicked out and then he goes back to school later. So he, while he's both practicing in the real world, he also is pursuing an academic path as well. 
at at times when you think he would have given up or older in life and I'm wondering what you sort of think I mean you you are in higher academia about the the idea of of practice on the ground and and study I oh this is interesting because I had never I was not consciously aware of um that space between maybe academic study and and kind of practice on the ground, or I, I wasn't thinking about it in the uh, the connection to what I what I do for a living, which is very much teaching writing in an academic context. Uh, he flunked out of conservatory basically twice, and and we have his his grade reports. We we have um, still quite a few. Uh, um, reminiscences of, of people who had worked with him at the time that sort of said he was, you know, lazy. He had kind of a modicum of talent, but, you know, not no follow through, you know, wasn't going to go anywhere. And he um, just continued to sort of piece together a career out of things that he, you know, did know or was good at or, or thought he could get better at. Um, and you you can see him kind of learn his way around popular music. And then you can see him go, you know, back to school effectively um, in, in a really unusual and, and probably, I think, very humbling move for him. Uh, and then um, learn things about, you know, orchestral composition that, that he hadn't known. Um, he, his early work is basically all for piano. Um, and then he learned uh, later on to um, compose for a full orchestra. And uh, that sort of patchwork of taking, you know, okay, what, what does he know? What does he already know? What can he learn? What can he sort of reach out and have somebody else teach him um, and put that together? Uh, I think you can see that in his music. And that's something that, you know, for all of his prickliness, I found really moving and, and really admirable. He didn't, didn't, didn't give up um, either at the idea of, of success, but also just at the idea of, of artistic growth and, and production and invention and, and wanting to keep experimenting and, and make something new. Uh, and he was, that's, that's a heavy weight to take on as an artist. And it was one that he just shouldered and, and carried uh, his whole life. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. One of the things that Louise comments on 
and, and sort of this idea of, of maybe not just a break from music, but how the rest of your life affects your art is she she's talking about later in life when she's teaching piano that because of a lot of the heartbreak that she suffered, she couldn't play the same. It was just different. And she talks about that. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you're also an artist, and I'm wondering both in, in writing about these people in your own experience, do you feel like when you are doing art that, you know, how, how does your emotional state, how does loss and joy affect what you put on the page? And, and did you learn anything about that from writing about these characters? I think I felt that most acutely after I had a child partway through the writing of the book. Um, and I, I don't think parenthood is something that inevitably makes somebody like wiser or more insightful into the human condition. I, I don't want to imply that at all. Uh, but, but for me, um, just having a baby, I'd, I'd been writing, um, so I'd known that Louise at, at some point sort of loses custody of her child and ends up living most of her life um, on another continent from him, separated from her son. And when I had first encountered that set of facts, it was sort of, it was like one quirk among many. It was, you know, I there were all these people in Paris kind of doing these crazy things and these unexpected things and uh, um, making questionable parenting decisions. Uh, and I, I, I didn't even know whether she had sort of lost custody before, you know, did she lose custody because she just took off for, for Buenos Aires? Uh, or, or was it the other way around that she left because she lost her child? Um, and then just, just for me personally, after I had had my son, I just felt like, you know, this is, this was not an adventure. This was not a quirk. This was not, you know, this, this, this was, this was a tragedy with a sort of capital T, I, I felt, um, and just something that I wanted to to understand better and approach in a more serious way, um, and 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 do and and do the research to figure out, you know, exactly what what had happened um, at that moment in her life, uh, and I think that a lot of the the emotions she feels about her, about her child, about giving birth, about raising him, about eventually losing him, um, ended up being very informed by by my own life in a way that I didn't realize was going to happen when I started. In Eric's life, we see his challenges getting emotionally attached to other people. There's two people that are are notable in the book. One is Philippe, who is a narrator who's based on a poet friend of his in real life. And then there was a painter, Suzanne. And with Philippe, it was kind of always that Philippe was giving, giving, and giving. And then with Suzanne, Eric kept getting really, really close. But then when it came to be a more sexual relationship and they were very intimate, he couldn't go there. Can you talk a little bit about Eric, this side of, of Eric's personality? One of kind of mystery moments that, that pops up in writing about Satie is um, that relationship with Suzanne Valadon. Um, which is, as, as far as we know, his his only romantic relationship. They were involved very publicly for for a few months, uh, and then, as far as anyone knows, he he was not romantically attached to to anyone else. Uh, and I think in sort of very early writings, um, there's this sort of fairy tale interpretation that he was just so heartbroken at having lost her that he just couldn't dream of you know ever risking his heart on another person. Um, I think there's maybe another wave of speculation where. People think that um, 
that he was attracted to men and, and didn't feel that he could acknowledge that in, in his era. Although he was sort of uniquely at a place and time where that was as close to acceptable as, as it was going to be anywhere in the world um, at that time. And, and certainly he knew people who were very publicly involved in, in same-sex relationships. I, and I think sort of now, I mean, just looking at, at his life or looking at the connections he did or didn't make, there's just sort of no no evidence that he was comfortable with um, with sex or with romance or that, that that was something that he that he wanted or that he looked for or that he would have known what to do with uh, if, if it presented itself to him um, as it does with Suzanne. So for me, and, I, and again, I don't know, you know, it's not a biography. This ended up being being my interpretation of the character, but I, I mean, I think he's somebody to whom you know friendship is important. He, he's he's not somebody who exists or wants to exist totally without human relationships or, or human companionship. I mean, I think he's often hungry for connection, um, but I don't think he's somebody who's seeking out um, sexual relationships or, or conventionally intimate relationships uh, in in the ways that we think of most people doing. I, and, and that was something that I wanted to, to write about in the book, um, and, and sort of have a character who is, um, maybe what he is looking for or not looking for is a little bit different, um, than we think of most people wanting. Philippe was a really important person in Eric's life, especially in the beginning of his, his musical career. Philippe is someone he met early on when he became an adult and, and was entering the, the world there. Philippe was a writer. They teamed up to kind of write and do music together. I think he, he also has a great perspective because you can sort of reflect back on Eric through other eyes. And one of the things he says that is also, to me, maybe at the heart of the book and what you're exploring is he had this one line where he said, how did one communicate the desperate seriousness of art? And I liked that line because, I mean, they were they were in the midst of this, this really in- intense time in Paris, you know, living on the edge. But it was, it felt like life or death for art. So I, I read all kinds of books working on this. You know, I, I read a ton of biographical research. I read a ton of music theory. I read a ton of like daily life in the period, a ton of novels uh, set, you know, in the same places or, or eras. Um, I read a ton of fiction with characters uh, based on real people. Um, and then a book which ended up being really um, helpful, which I didn't realize was going to be, um, was Just Kids by Patti Smith. Uh, so, you know, her, her memoir about, you know, being a young artist in New York, what leapt out at me was the utter sincerity of, of what she felt at the time of, of what her, her sort of whole cohort felt that I think it's, it's easy to look back at our younger selves, or it's easy to sort of look at, at young artists and, um, feel a sense of irony or a sense of distance or to look at really experimental work, which, which by its nature, you know, not every experiment pans out and sort of feel like, oh, that that was, that was silly in the attempt or that that was failed. And just the absolute seriousness with which they were approaching, specific art projects, but then this whole idea of what it would look like to lead, um, you know, not a sort of conventional eight to five life, but, but a life built on, on art and experiment and, uh, creativity. Uh, that, that was really, um, it was something I felt, I felt so intensely in that book and something that I, I wanted to, 
be true to in the vexations. And, and that's some of Philippe's lines come out of that. One of the things I think is so interesting, although when you think about how poor Eric was, maybe it isn't. But, you know, that that life that you are describing in Paris, the Belle Epoque, it, it's so it feels so lush and rich and there's alcohol and girls and noise and people at the bars and the cabarets and it seems so rich. And his music is so minimal on another level. And I'm wondering what what you think about that. I had definitely thought about the juxtaposition of our kind of, um, you know, received images of, of that lusciousness and, and this sort of, you know, pleasure-filled historical moment. I, I had not thought of the juxtaposition quite in those terms with, with his music, although I think you're saying something really cool there. Something that I had been thinking about with with Belle Epoque Paris and, and the art of the period and the performers of the period and kind of the people on whose backs um, so much of Paris as this like, you know, pleasure destination rested on uh, was that our art's always been a hustle. <laughs> like it's always been really hard uh, to, to make a life. And um, certainly there were people who achieved like great fame in that era as, as dancers or, or as performers who were um, really still struggling um, or who, you know, struggled after they could no longer dance. Um, that, you know, for, for women often, you know, your ticket out was still to become like a rich man's mistress. You know, e even if you were um, on posters, you know, that, that was going to be your ticket out. Uh, and, and how precarious and how exploitative a lot of that, you know, the, the economy of, of that artistic moment really was. I, that was interesting to me. I, and then in terms of Eric's music, there is, there's, there's a spareness to, to a lot of it, um, which I think in the early pieces, um, yeah, you'll see some people sort of talking about it as, as a feature of, of his technical limitations. Um, and then other people saying, you know, no, 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 he absolutely, um, this is absolutely purposeful from, from the get go that he, um, didn't necessarily have, have the technical know-how to, um, to do more and more layered types of pieces. Um, but certainly he did by, by the end of his life. Um, and, and you still, get an artist who's really interested in in miniatures in in fragments um in things that are you know not sometimes the typical marquee projects for a composer i think in writing an equivalent would be if if somebody's a short story writer they just keep getting asked you know well, do you have a novel are you working on a novel um we think of the novel as the you know or, or is you know maybe especially like a big doorstep novel as this you know typical marker of of prestige or or of success um, and I think Satie was very hungry for success of all kinds, um, but he was also not necessarily interested in typically kind of prestige granting projects um, that he was always interested in um, things that were seemed more more slight or uh, fragmentary or um, or playful, which, I, again, I think in, in writing it's it's. Uh, in some ways harder to be funny than serious, but we perceive the funny stuff as maybe less, uh, it receives less applause. Uh, and I think there's, there's definite corollaries there. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? What I'm going to read is, um, it's a page from 
about two thirds of the way through Invisible Cities by um, Italo Calvino, um, which I don't think is a book that anyone looks at my work and is like, oh, clearly that was a debt to Invisible Cities. but the book has just been incredibly important to me. Um, and it's it's a book with just lots of sort of, it's it's these flights of fancy, these um, envisionings of impossible cities, um, places that just do not operate according to the laws uh, of our, our world. This for me is a moment where there's, the, there's a human heart that gets, sort of exposed here. Um, So Marco Polo has been uh, talking about all these fantastical cities um, to to the con. Sire, now I have told you about all the cities I know. There is still one of which you never speak. Marco Polo bowed his head. Venice, the con said. Marco smiled. What else do you believe I have been talking to you about? The emperor did not turn a hair, and yet I have never heard you mention that name. And Polo said, every time I describe a city, I am saying something about Venice. When I ask you about other cities, I want to hear about them, and about Venice when I ask you about Venice. To distinguish other cities' qualities, I must speak of a first city that remains implicit. For me, it is Venice. That you should then begin each tale of your travels from the departure, describing Venice as it is, all of it, not omitting anything you remember of it. Memory's images, once they are fixed in words, are erased, Polo said. Perhaps I am afraid of losing Venice all at once if I speak of it. Or perhaps, speaking of other cities, I have already lost it, little by little. And for me, uh, just that that moment in the book is the sort of reminder. um, You know, I'm I'm interested in uh, experiment. I'm I'm interested in in narratives that aren't sort of, you know, conventional realist fiction. I I, I read just about anything. Uh, But for me, you know, I I always want those moments of of character, of sort of like the human heart. Um, And and in this book, which is so much about just these sort of, you know, imaginative, uh, um, fantastical cities, there's this moment of like homesickness. (laughs) You know, what what reads to me is this, uh, you know, Marco Polo, you know, he, he came from this particular place that he never talks about. Uh, and the con finally calls him on it. And he's, you know, I'm, I'm always talking about Venice, but I'm afraid to talk about Venice because I'm afraid to lose it. Uh, and I just, I love that moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Can you read something you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft? So I'm going to read just a couple paragraphs from from the vexations that uh, go really directly to the question you had asked about about intimacy or, or about sort of what Eric was looking at, looking maybe for in, in relationships. Uh, it's from about halfway through the book. Um, he's been friends with Claude WC for, for quite some time at this point. Um, and as, as in real life, WC does um, some orchestrations of the gymnopodies. Um, so Seti wrote them for solo piano. Um, WC has scored it for like flute, harp, oboe. Um, there's a, a performance in 1897. What Claude has done with the gymnopodies is a gift. 
It was your music, Claude tells him in the lobby afterward, with a kind of magnanimity that comes only from having plenty of music of one's own. Eric wants to scream so loud that the chandelier falls and crushes them both. That would be a kind of touch, too, broken glass and obliterating weight, the opposite of the touch inside the recital hall, where he just experienced one of the most intimate moments of his life, and it was with Claude, and Claude doesn't even know. Eric understands the narcissism in this scenario, namely that as much as he admires Claude's music, what he loved most was listening to his own melodies, made grand and expansive. Two things that were, were hard about that passage is, is I was thinking about, you know, different types of intimacy other than, than the sexual and thinking about a character who is um, desiring or experiencing intimacy through, through friendship or through music um, and, and trying to get that sort of emotionally right and then also trying to get that like linguistically right um there were multiple iterations of this paragraph that were sort of like claude has like made love to him through, through like like the you know the sounds of the genopogy and it was it was bad um you know and, and it was just a section where i felt like i knew what i wanted to say and it was worth saying um but i i couldn't figure out how to say it um but but kept kept banging my head against that wall um, until i arrived at this version where do you write uh, I have um, a sort of, uh, in our house, we have a sort of shared office slash guest room slash stuff room, um, sometimes in here, um, often in coffee shops. Um, and that was uh, probably the most productive spaces for this particular book um, were a good half dozen different coffee shops in, in Grand Rapids. I ended up with very detailed opinions about uh, seating and, and music selection and uh, the price of refills uh, and, and really acquired pretty exhaustive knowledge by the time the book was done about my different different cafe options here. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, I do a poor job of it. Um, I, for my own sanity, I'm, I'm trying to do better. Um, I have a three-year-old who doesn't go to bed until 1030. Uh, he's just always been this way. Uh, and, and, you know, and then gets up, you know, early, early in the morning and we're all off to, to work. Uh, so I, I've been really, I really miss television and movies. Um, I, I really miss the opportunity to, um, be inside somebody else's world, um, which obviously I get through reading also, but, but in a different way. I, and, um, yeah, I've, I've been realizing kind of how how acutely I miss sometimes those evening hours of just being able to to dive into um, another art form and another type of narrative. Uh, so so when or until I can get back to that, um, anytime I can just like like exercise is good, um, and and sometimes music, uh, which again I haven't made a ton of time for, but um, can be an escape from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? No consistent answer to this. Uh, my husband is a writer, uh, and certainly I value his feedback a lot, and I've, I've shown him a lot of things. Um, I have, you know, friends from, from grad school that I've sometimes reached out to. Uh, and then sometimes I, I have been working so close to deadline uh, that the version my agent or editor saw is uh, it's, it's, good, it's as good as I can make it, um, but sometimes no one has seen it. I, and that's uh, a, a little scary, um, but I've gotten better at being, I think, my, my own editor, my own reader, um, and, and of course benefit tremendously from the feedback of other people, but there's no, no single answer to that one. How have you dealt with rejection? I think it's such a, a constant that 
you know, go, go ahead, feel crummy about it and then, and then shake it off and, and move on. Um, I think for me, the most useful thing to remind myself of is so often people are just looking for a work to be something different than what I wanted it to be. Um, that if somebody is going to a particular story or a particular book, wanting it to be X and I wanted it to be Y, um, we're not going to feel the same way about the work and that's okay. (laughs) That's just, um, people come with different expectations and different tastes. I, and then in terms of like placing particular, you know, stories in a magazine, I I was just, I was an editor at the Kenyan review for so long that I absolutely, you know, I, I was rejecting wonderful stories all the time, all the time. And it, and it was no fault of the story. It was about um, just when you have so few pages or so few slots and, and so many wonderful work, um, so much wonderful work, uh, that it, um, it it comes down to a lot of decisions that, that have nothing to do with the story and, and nothing to do with the writer. Uh, and and it doesn't always feel that way from, from the writer's perspective, but um, usually I can, I can remind myself of that. And what is your favorite word? I do not have one. I don't have a favorite anything. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly indecisive uh, in many aspects of my life. Uh, and it, it absolutely, I don't have a favorite food. I don't have a favorite drink. I don't have a favorite word. I don't have a favorite book. I just can't decide. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Caitlin Horrocks, author of The Vexations. You can follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. And please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and your donations keep the dialogue going. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. As we say in public radio, isn't this worth the price of a coffee? And please rate the show on iTunes and invite your friends to listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>